Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is At Home and Abroad After Obama, and it was recorded on February 2nd, 2016. It's always a treat to be near the Huntington Library. Uh, Remember Henry Huntington in 1912-13 went up to the Sierra Nevada, created high, uh, high voltage transmission, built Shaver Lake, Huntington Lake, produced 500 megawatts of electricity and powered half of LA's supply, including the trolley system. And he did it in one-fifth the time of high-speed rail for the last 10 years, which hasn't laid one inch of track yet. So I feel like we should honor him every time we come here. Uh, you could talk for hours about what the world will be after Obama, whether how to deal with $9 trillion of debt, sluggish GDP, high labor rate of people not participating uh, as productive workers immigration. But I'd, I'd like also to, to look at foreign policy and especially kind of an esoteric, if I could, element, what we call deterrence the loss of U.S. deterrence and how we're going to get it back after he leaves. Deterrence, remember, is a, it's the art of making somebody do something they don't want to do. And what it, what it really means is not uh, that aggressors should not attack their neighbors. The f- most famous uh, synopsis of it I know is the obscure 18th century British parliamentarian, the first Earl of Halifax, and he said, we British hang horse thieves, but we don't do it because they steal horses. We do it so other people won't steal horses. And that's what deterrence is. It comes from a Latin word, terio, and to frighten somebody. And it has an evil twin called appeasement. You know the difference because when you go to the grocery store, you see a young mom and her children, and one mom believes in the art of appeasement and says, if you do that again, I'm going to... And then one mom has an ability to stop it cold because the child is afraid of the consequences. Appeasement comes from the Latin word pax, peace. And uh, before we start, I thought we'd just give some reminders about deterrence and, and the consequences that throughout history. We have three or four great examples. One of our fellows, Bruce Thornton, wrote something called The Wages of Appeasement, a Hoover Press book two years ago. The famous one of Philip of Macedon and Demosthenes, and, and you know, quite familiar, the story with Hitler. Please don't go into the Rhineland. It's demilitarized under the Versailles Treaty. Please don't try to subvert the Saarland plebiscite. Please don't have the Anschluss. That's forbidden in the Versailles Treaty. Please don't uh, absorb parts of Czechoslovakia. And then he went into Poland. Appeasement didn't work. There's a couple of things I'd like to remind that I think they'll, they'll be apropos in relation to Obama. The first thing about appeasement is that nobody likes the deter, they all love the appeaser. Because appeasement guarantees peace in the short term, and the person who is for deterrence assumes that you have to use violence or have to be tough, and you're not gonna, it's going to be a little bit costly so that it won't be really costly in the future. By that I mean in 1937, Stanley Baldwin left office after appeasing Hitler for three years, beloved. Neville Chamberlain took over, and he was even more popular. And Winston Churchill was despised as a man, they said, that wanted to bring back the Somme 
and Verdun because he wanted to stand up to Hitler. Jimmy Carter, in 19, uh, up till 1979, had higher, much higher popularity than Ronald Reagan, who was a, a declared candidate late in 79. Carter, remember, said, not one soldier will die on my watch when I'm president. He said, we have no inordinate fear of communism. He said, I sold warplanes to Saudi Arabia, but I made sure they had no bomb racks on them. And, and people liked that. Reagan came along and said, you know, there will be no hostages when I'm president. That really scared people because he was trying to reestablish deterrence. And so that's one thing to remember about deterrence. The second is the person who is appeased always hates his appeaser. It's counterintuitive. But Neville Chamberlain, in a series of disastrous decisions, gave away Austria, gave away Czechoslovakia, allowed Hitler to rearm. And what did Hitler say after the Munich Agreement? He said, if I see that old man with his umbrella, I'm going to jump up and stomp him in the stomach. And Goering and Goebbels said, well, why? He gave everything to you. Well, the answer is that people that are by nature aggressive and dishonest cannot stand people who appease them. This president has given almost everything he could to the Iranians. And what do they do? They do exactly what they did to Jimmy Carter. They humiliate him. You would think that somebody in the Iranian theocracy would say, this deal is in our long-term interest. Let's not shoot a missile near the, the USS Harry Truman. Or let's not go take hostages off Farsi Island and humiliate them. But historically, we know that's just the opposite. Appeasers are hated by those that they do great benefit. It's just something about human nature that when you show compassion, that magnanimity is never seen as strength. It's always written off as weakness to be taken advantage of rather than to be appreciated. It's sad. The third thing to remember about deterrence is it's not just military power. In 1939, when France and Britain were trying to rearm quickly, they had, in combination with Belgium and Holland, four million men in the field. Germany, the Wehrmacht, only had three million. The Char Big B French tank was just light years ahead of what Germany had, Mark II tank. The British Spitfire already was on record of being a superior fighter to the ME-109. But what they did not have is the will to use those assets. When Hitler had lost, world, the Germans had lost World War I and they became emboldened by it and the Allies had won World War I and they'd been depressed. In the textbooks in France in 1925, it was against the education code to mention the word Verdun. They won Verdun. They lost half a million casualties, but they won. In Germany, Verdun was a word of honor and prestige. So what is deterrence? It's military power, but it's at least the probability that you're unpredictable and you might use it. If you have great assets, and we have more we spend more per year, supposedly, than the next 15 powers in the world. But people think that we're predictable and we'll never use it, then you lose deterrence. And that's a very dangerous thing. Let me give you a few examples from history. And why did Joseph Stalin greenlight the Chinese invasion after the North Korean invasion, and then three months later the Chinese invasion of North Korea, probably for two reasons, not just that the Soviets had obtained parity by detonating a nuclear weapon, but a great man, Dean Acheson, at the press co 
conference uh, club in Washington, D.C., had said three months before the invasion, when asked, is South Korea under the American defensive umbrella? He said, oh, my God, no, we're disarming after World War II. We can't. And that was just an offhanded remark. But it, it, it lost deterrence because people were convinced that either the United States could not or would not defend South Korea. Saddam went into Kuwait for a lot of reasons, supposedly, to get money back he thought was owed him about over the Iranian war, to grab its oil wealth. But probably what triggered it and made it made what might have been possible likely is when April Glassby, the ambassador to Iraq, said to him when directly asked in April of 1990, we have no interest in territorial disputes between Arab countries. To Saddam, that triggered something. And usually throughout history, when a power, no matter what its overwhelming edge in actual forces on the ground or manpower, when it signals that it cannot or will not do something, that's quite dangerous. And finally, the thing to remember about deterrence is that it's very hard to achieve. It's incremental. It takes years. And you can be lost very quickly if a person is considered to be naive or not able to use the force that he inherited. The problem that we are having right now is that the United States, for all practical purposes, has lost deterrence. And let's just take a very brief tour of the Middle East. I think that when Obama came into office, he said that he wanted a special relationship with Recep Erdogan and Turkey, and he thought that that would give him leverage and what he called the gateway to the Muslim world. All it did was convince Erdogan that Obama would never criticize the Islamization of Turkey. And Turkey almost immediately got involved in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It pressured uh, us on bases. It persecuted the Kurds. And that special relationship has dissolved mostly because the Turkish uh, government felt that the United States no longer could or would pressure it on a number of uh, major issues. And now that's a disastrous situation. Turkey, in some cases, stealthily is supporting ISIS as a wedge against Shia uh, like-minded extremists. I don't think anybody believes that distancing ourselves with Israel was a wise move. We were supposed to reach out to Hamas and the Palestinian authorities, and yet in 2015 we had knife attacks, pre-modern attacks on post-modern Israel. And I think the answer was that people felt for some reason the United States would not or could not do something or would not criticize uh, the Palestinians but would criticize Israel. There were on nice words that were said. Uh, Netanyahu was a quote-unquote chicken blank, according to an aide. They made him wait. Petty humiliations, but we did something to that relationship that made the, the larger region much more dangerous. If we look at Iran and you talk to people from countries in the region, nobody believes that it's a matter of if it becomes nuclear, but when and what will be the consequences with the Sunni so-called moderate monarchies and authoritarians will have to find some type of deterrence to balance that nuclear weapon. And as we've seen from this missile shot near our carrier and as we've seen from the capture of American uh, temporary, I should say, detention of American servicemen, we're going to see more and more of those because the Iranians are saying to people, they are so wedded to this agreement, even though it's not in their interest, and we're going to be so provocative that you're not going to be able to count on them, but you will be able to fear us because we're not like the United States. 
So Iran is now, I think, more unstable vis-a-vis us in the region at large than it was in the past. I don't know what happened in Egypt, but apparently the United States was caught up in the Arab Spring, and nobody's going to defend the kleptocratic Mubarak. But the idea that Mohammed Morsi, because he went to USC or was a Cal State professor, whatever we thought he was, I think James Clapper said that the Muslim Brotherhood was largely secular. But we backed a one-time... Uh, one vote, one time Islamicist in Egypt. And we ended up doing the nearly impossible. The moderates hate us, the military hates us, and the Islamicists hate us. That, that's hard to, to do. Syria no longer exists as a country, and either does Iraq. The latest rules of engagement, if you've seen in Afghanistan, they prohibit U.S. servicemen from firing on the Taliban at sight. They have to wait till they're fired upon. I don't think anybody believes that this administration is going to stay the course. So the Middle East, I think, is chaotic. I could do the same tour with China. I think none of our allies, Japan, Philippines, South Korea, or Taiwan, believe they're securely under the American nuclear umbrella. When we said, in theory, we'd like to build down to 500 nuclear weapons along with the Soviets, those countries, if you remember some of the uh, comments off the record, they say, well, how many, how many nuclear weapons are ours? We can build them like Toyotas, but we don't because you have all this huge shield. And then North Korea broke the deal. Their patron that was the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, they went nuclear. We should go nuclear. Are we going to have to go nuclear? That's something that's going to be in our future. If you look at Europe, not just the financial problem, but it's disarmed, and now it's got a million immigrants this year in Germany alone. It's chaotic. Again, there's the system that there's a sense that the United States did not believe in the post-war order. But I'd like to be particular now and focus again on how we actually lost this deterrence in the Middle East. The first is that you can lose deterrence by euphemisms. So when the United States president did not want to use the word terrorism, but use circumlocutions like overseas contingency operations for anti-terrorist operations, man-caused disasters, workplace violence, largely secular. Uh, Mr. Brennan said that uh, jihad was a personal odyssey. The image, whether he intended or not, the image to our enemies was such that this administration is either confused about radical Islam or it's afraid to say something, and therefore that offers us some opportunity. Or sometimes the, the euphemisms can evolve into a a more explicit and direct form of appeasement. If you're in the nominal head of the West, what you don't want to do at a Christian prayer breakfast is to announce to the world that Christianity should not, quote-unquote, get on its high horse because of the Inquisition. 3,000 people killed in the Inquisition. And the Crusades, which was an effort to actually to reclaim land that under, since the Roman times had been Western. That sent a message that the President of the United States was not committed to the traditional defense of Christendom. If you're worried about appeasement or deterrence, the difference between the two, then you don't go to Cairo and announce to the Islamic world that Cordoba, during the Inquisition, i.e. 1492, not 1493, was a bastion 
of Islamic tolerance that taught Christianity not to be so vindictive when there wasn't one Muslim in Cordoba. They had been ethnically cleansed during the Reconquista 200 years earlier. So what are the people in the Arab world thinking? The President of the United States is either so ignorant of history or he's going to fabricate the idea there wasn't any Muslims in Cordoba when we knew there weren't and that therefore they were more advanced and more tolerant than the Christians. What does that say? So language is important. I'm reminded of that is when you write columns sometimes for syndicators, different countries will write you nasty letters to their consulates. I wrote something critical of China once, and a person from the consulate asked if they could come from San Francisco to talk to me, and she came, and very sweet, nice, and after these fineries, she wanted to get down to business about how I had misrepresented the Great People's Republic's liberal program. But the, here's what was so interesting. After futile conversation for 10 minutes, she said, can I talk to you off the record? And I said, yes. She said, what is it with your president? Every president tries to advance their na national interest. He's not advancing our national interest. We're, we're flummoxed by it. What's going on? I said, you tell me what's going on. She's the only thing we can come up with. He's inviting us to be aggressive. Then like a bear trap, he's going to snap on us. I said, I don't think so. So I want to give Obama his due, that maybe that was the strategy, but at least the Chinese are confused by it, which is a good thing. <laughs> there were three seminal events in addition to euphemism and in addition to bowing before uh, heads of state or the so-called apology tour. If you're going to apologize for the sins of the United States and its record of genocide, there's one country in the world you do not want to do that to. And that's, you don't want to ever go to, A, a foreign country and trash your own. Remember, Churchill said, the sign of a bad statesman is a man who leaves his frontiers and attacks his country when overseas in general. But in particular, you don't go to Turkey to do that. The history of modern Ottomanism is persecution and genocide against the Armenians, the Kurds, and the Greeks. And yet our president went to Turkey to apologize for our distant past. So there were a lot of ways that we lost deterrence. It explains the chaos in the Middle East, but there are three seminal events I want to finish with that I think really did us a great disservice, and they were so um, subtle in some ways that we didn't fully appreciate the effect that they had on our enemies and our friends. The first, of course, was uh, the complete pullout from Iraq on December 31st of 2011. Obama, as a candidate, had promised that there would be no troops in Iraq, there should not be any troops after March of 2008. He wasn't even uh, in the final against Hillary yet. And then when the surge started to kick in at the end of 2006, and by 2008 it had worked, Obama recalibrated that. But then when he came back into president, he said, I will get everybody out before the, he said, privately before I'm up for re-election. So it was a campaign gambit. We had about 45,000 troops, and they were there for three reasons. One, to control the airspace of Iraq so Iranians did not feel it, it belonged to them. Two, to pressure uh, Nuri al-Maliki's government to divide oil revenues equitably so that the Kurdish and Sunni minorities would not be punished. And three, on the ground to make sure that the remnants of al-Qaeda did not reformulate after we had defeated and humiliated them. So when Obama came into office, the death rate per month in 2009 in Iraq was less than the accident rate of the U.S. military. And by December 
No one was killed. The next year, we lost 11 people in 2010. For all practical purposes, that country was, was subdued. Nevertheless, Obama then, who understood that, took credit for something that he had criticized. We forget that. He said it was the worst mistake in U.S. modern foreign policy history. And then no sooner he had said that, Joe Biden got on television and said, Iraq will be the greatest achievement of this administration. When Obama announced the complete withdrawal of all U.S. troops, he said, we are leaving a secure and self-reliant Iraq. When that did not prove to be true, but as Baathist, ex-Al-Qaedas, they saw that we left, Maliki began to torment, persecute, go after the Sunni majorities. They started to think that this new thing called ISIS was something as a bulwark against uh, the government of Iraq. Iran came in both on land and air. This new thing called ISIS emerged. Obama said, well, around here, we, as we talk about Kobe Bryant, just because you put on a uniform doesn't make you a Kobe Bryant. These people are JVs. Let's send a message as well. That was a disastrous decision. To, uh, And I think the only modern parallel is all of you can just think back to the election of 1956. Eisenhower's up for re-election. He's running against Adlai Stevenson. He's angry about the Korean War. He didn't start it. Harry Truman did. It's now the third year. We have over 100,000 troops. We didn't lose 4,500 dead in Korea. We lost 36,000 dead, 4,000 missing, over 100,000 wounded. And Ike, as a talking point for the 56 election, said, I didn't get us in here. Truman did it, and I'm going to pull out everybody out before the election. Had we pulled out all those troops from South Korea, there wouldn't be Kia or Samsung or anything. It would be North Korea's mess that we see today in the north, confined to the north. So that was a bad decision that created this uh, really did its part to lose deterrence very quickly. The second was the bombing of Libya between March and October of 2011. Remember that we were a day late and dollars short on the Arab Spring. Susan uh, Rice, the UN ambassador, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, Samantha Power from the National Security Council, they all said, we're not doing enough. We have to do something. We have to go and bomb Gaddafi out of power. There's some demonstrations. Uh, the British and the French were there first, so Obama said, let's go into Libya and bomb. Now, the funny thing is the Nobel Peace Prize laureate was given a UN mandate, two things, no-fly zones and humanitarian support. Very quickly, we violated the UN charter, that charter, because we started to bomb in a way that we had. If you want to break the UN, I have no problem with it, but don't try to suggest that you're there for UN prerogatives and then openly and flagrantly break them. The other problem was Gaddafi was a monster in rehabilitation. He had always been an enemy. He was a nefarious character, but he was turning over power to a westernized progeny. I went there in 2006, had a ruptured appendix and was operated there. I can comment on socialized medicine if anybody wants to know. And uh, there was real reform. I looked at the antiquities, but he had done things that you wouldn't believe, and there were people in the Libyan government that were... And then we bombed him out of power over that six months. We coined the term lead from behind. Hillary chortled. We came, we saw Gaddafi died, making fun of him in the way that Caesar had over his victory at Mithridates. Winnie witty wiki And the logical trajectory of removing an authoritarian without any 
concern of what follows was a wasteland that took place and now is an ISIS birth, birthplace of ISIS in some ways in North Africa. And the logical trajectory was the Benghazi disaster. The full story we don't always know. That sent a message that even if the United States were to bomb or to intervene militarily, it would be so frightened of the consequences, it would not stay. I argued, as many of you did, we shouldn't go there in the first place, but if you're going to go there, then you might as well clean up the mess that you create. But we didn't do that because we were on record that we'd just gotten out or we were on the process of getting out of Iraq. It was in the administration's way of thinking it was going to be the anti-Iraq. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Don't get on the ground. People don't want another Iraq. This will be clean. It will be really a good talking point that we supported democracy for the 2012 election. Finally, and most notoriously, in August of 2012, notice how these are all right before the re-election of 2012. Bashar Assad, who Obama on three occasions said, you've got to go, quote, direct quote, it would be better if he left, direct quote, it's high time that he's gone. Of course, he ignored that. And then Obama, not once, but twice, said, if he were to move, I'm quoting directly, WMD around, that would be a game changer, and that would be a red line. And then he said at the end of the speech, we, we consider a red line that he can't go across if he uses WMD. Well, as soon as he heard that and what he had seen in Libya and what he had seen pulling out of Iraq and what he had seen about the apology tour and all the things we've talked about, you knew that he was going to do that, just the way that North Koreans were going to try something after Dean Acheson, just like Saddam Hussein was going to do. And that's exactly what he did. He used chemical weapons. And what did we do? Obama said two things. I didn't set a red line. The UN had done it first. The Congress set a UN, set a red line. And then the next week he said, well, it was chlorine gas. That's not really a WMD. Didn't, I guess he didn't realize that chlorine gas was the first use of poison gas in history at, at Passchendaele. So the image that he sent was even when they use gas and even when they're told that they can't do that, the United States either can't or won't do anything. So we lost deterrence. Let me sum up by saying that deterrence is very, very hard to obtain very easily to restore, and remember that the person who is in charge with restoring deterrence, whether it's Winston Churchill after Neville Chamberlain or Ronald Reagan after Jimmy Carter, is hated. The next president cannot go on like we are unless you think that shooting missiles at $5 billion carriers is de rigueur, or unless you think that Americans can be taken whenever uh, the Iranians want and humiliated on camera or you think that we, our allies do not get support or we're going to dis... That can't go on and still have a post-war order. But the person who will be in charge of restoring it, Democrat or Republican, will be uh, extremely disliked because like every parent that has to instill punishment or discipline or order on an on a unruly child, he's hated in the short term and he will get his due, but it will be decades after. And with that pessimism, I'll leave you <laughs> on the Obama legacy. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.